I'd like to welcome those of you who are visiting us or have visited us for a couple weeks. We are going verse by verse through the Gospel of John, and today we're going to pick up at verse 25 and complete the chapter. It's important that we uh, develop our beliefs and our lifestyle based on what the Word of God says and not on people's opinion or their stories. This week, you who were on Facebook or may have heard the news that uh, this book about the boy who went to heaven is a total fraud. Uh, He made it all up. Uh, Tyndale House Publishers will withdraw it and uh, Lifeway is taking it off their bookshops. When that book came out and other books like it came out, just based on my own understanding of scripture and other things, I, I knew that it was fraudulent. I knew it was a fake from the start. I'm not the only one. There are a lot of other people who said the same thing, but guess what? No one listened. Because everybody wants to believe this nonsense. There's a piece of fiction passed off as a true life biography. There's something wrong when Christians who have been Christians for decades, fall for this stuff. And the only reason I can figure it out is we don't develop our doctrine just based on what the Word of God says. We want to believe this stuff. So we believe all kinds of crazy stories. And so it's important that we, we turn to the written Word of God for our doctrines, our beliefs, and the way we live. So today we are in the Gospel of John, and this is a word for us that we can stake our life on. Um, Last week, a member of our class came up and asked me about a book called Harbinger. Very famous book. It talks about uh, the return of the Messiah and all this kind of stuff. And and asked me a question about what did I think about it. So I, I didn't know about it. So I got online, and I, I went to the Amazon site and looked it up, and then <clears throat> went to other sites and discovered that it was a piece of, piece of fiction. But a lot of people have accepted it as uh, a book written as, a doc, as doctrinal truth, but it's basically presenting heresy. I remember a number of years ago, now I really would be dating myself, but this, is, this goes back into the 60s when I was involved in the occult. And I was involved in uh, the investigation of UFOs. And there was a book called The Flying Saucers of Landon. And it was a bestseller in what we would today call the New Age movement. And of course I bought it and read it and believed it. And the guy claimed that uh, he met some aliens who were all, came from the other side of Venus, you know, and all these kinds of crazy things. Now, how could anybody with a college education believe that kind of nonsense? But guess who believed it? I believed it. I was duped. Later, it was exposed. It was uh, exposed as a piece of fiction. In fact, the man who wrote it originally as a piece of fiction submitted it to a publishing house, or several publishing houses, and no one would print it. No one would publish it. 
He brought it back a few years later and presented it as a true story. And guess what? They picked right up on it, so we really <clears throat> So, what we really need to be reading is the scriptures. So today we're going to go verse by verse through the Gospel of John. And we're going to begin at John chapter 7 and verse 25. Now, if you were here last week, you know that uh, the, the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the three major feasts, is taking place in Jerusalem. And Jesus comes down from Galilee about midway through the feast, uh, which is an eight-day feast that goes from one Sabbath to another Sabbath. And he comes down in the middle of that feast uh, secretly, so he would not be seen. And then finally, on like a Wednesday or Thursday, he steps out of the shadows, and he begins to teach fearlessly in the temple. And so today we're going to see the reaction to his teaching in the temple. And here's how we're going to divide this section. Verses 25 through 36 is going to be section 1. And this would be the reaction to Jesus' teaching in the temple, let's say on a Wednesday or a Thursday, in the middle of the feast. And then verses 37 through 52, uh, it jumps ahead to the last day of the feast, the eighth day of the feast. And uh, we're going to see the reaction to Jesus at the end of the feast. Okay, so that's how we're going to do it. So let's start off at verse 25. Now we're introduced in verse 25 to a group of locals. Okay, look what it says. Now some of them from Jerusalem, do you see that? These are Jerusalemites. These are local people attending the feast, not pilgrims from other parts of Israel. Okay, so these are locals. And some of them from Jerusalem said, about Jesus as he's teaching in the temple, and I'm going to just sort of do it the way I would say it, wait a second, isn't this the guy they're seeking to kill? Now here's how it says in the New King James, is this not he whom they seek to kill? And the answer is yes. Who are the dead? Yeah, the Jewish leadership. Uh, they have been against Jesus for months, and they are seeking to kill him, and the locals realize it, and they're saying, wait a second, what's he doing here? This is the guy that they're trying to kill, isn't it? Uh, what's happened? Uh, has he duped them? Has, uh, have they changed their minds about Jesus and think he's really the Messiah? What is it that they're not trying to kill him now? What's going on around here? Oh, you know, so they're trying to figure out how is it that this guy Jesus is now standing up publicly right in the temple and teaching without being in danger. Okay? So what they do is they state their own conviction, these locals. Okay? So look at verse 27. Verse 26. <clears throat> Let's start at verse 26. Look what it said. But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. The Jewish leaders aren't doing anything. Do these rulers indeed know that this is truly the Christ, that they've been duped by him? So now they speak their own conviction. Verse 27. However, we know where this man is from. And where is he from? He's from Nazareth. And they say, hey, we know this man's from Nazareth. We know who this character is. You know, They might be duped, but we know where he's from. <laughs> we know who he is. And in verse 27 says, and when the Christ or the Messiah comes, guess what? No one knows where he's from. Uh, now, there was a popular belief in the first century 
that when the Messiah stepped onto the scene, he would just one day appear in the temple out of nowhere and proclaim himself to be the Messiah, and many people would begin to follow him. And they said, well, we know he can't be the Messiah. Why? Because we know where he's from. We've seen him before. We've seen this character before. So they're stating their conviction. And uh, when they say this, Jesus then uh, jumps in and he makes a comment. Look at verse 28. Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple. And look what he said. You both know me. They said we know where he comes from. You both know me, and you know where I am from. So Jesus affirms that they know where he's from, that they've seen him before. Or at least they think they know where he's from. Okay? Uh, this is what they know. Did you see that in verse 28? You both know me, and you know where I'm from. This is what they know, or what they think they know. Okay? Now look at the end, the rest of verse 28. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true. Some translations say is real. Whom you do what? Not know. Beginning of verse 28, here's what you know. You think you know. You think you know where I come from. You think I know, you know where I am. But let me tell you what you really don't know. And here's what you don't know at the end of verse 28. That I've not come of myself. I haven't taken this mission on by myself. But he who sent me is the one who is who's behind me, who's true, who's real. And of course that's God. And then he says this, whom you don't know. So you're you're really in the dark. You claim you know a lot, but you really don't know the one who's behind this entire mission, which is God. And look by contrast, verse 29. But I know. Say, here's what you claim you know, here's what you don't know, now verse 29, but I know who? Him, I know him. Why do you know him, Jesus? Because I'm from him, and he <coughs> sent me. I am his representative here on earth. And so Jesus basically just uh, interjects these comments, and he does that out loud. Notice in verse uh, 28, it says, he cried out as he taught in the temple. He hears them talking amongst themselves and he just raises his voice and he just interjects these thoughts. Now, as a result of this, he receives, there are three reactions. Reaction number one is in verse 30. Look what it says. Therefore, in light of what he just said, they, that's the locals, sought to take him. Now, they're complaining because the Jewish officials are doing nothing about his teaching, right? They said, there was a time when they wanted to kill him. What are they doing now to do this? So guess what we're going to do? We're going to take him ourselves. We're going to make a citizen's arrest. <laughs> you see? We're going to uh, uh, take the law in their own hands. And so they decided that they were going to take him. Verse 30. Therefore, they sought to take him. But, look what else it says in verse 30. No one laid a hand on him. Why not? Because his hour had not come. Uh, his hour means when he is going to be uh, put on the cross and he's going to die. And uh, so he slips their grasp. And he slips their grasp because 
his hour did not come. It's not God's timing for him to die. It's not God's timing for him to be arrested. It's not God's timing for all this to happen. So guess what? Jesus just slips through this. And when it says they sought to take him, it means they continually sought to take him. It's evidently they went up to try to grab him. He's probably standing on a portico, porch of the temple. So went up to grab him and he just sort of like this. I mean, you think some of the you know, cowboys can make moves on the football field? Jesus just sort of goes like this, and they go like this, and they get air, and they try to get him over here, and that, he can't get him. Why not? Well, it's not because he really is a great mover. It's because God was protecting him. And he slips right through their grass. Which shows us that he's invincible until it's, until God's, it's God's time for him to die. Isn't that right? Now, he has a mission. He says God has sent him. I know this, and I know that he sent me. I have a mission to do. And therefore, Jesus is invincible until he completes his mission. And I want to tell you something. You're invincible until God completes your, until you complete your mission that God's given you. I remember Jerry Fowler a number of years saying, you know, that I won't live one minute past the time God wants me to live. And I'll complete the mission that God wants me to complete. And when I die, then I've completed everything that God wants me to complete. Up until that time, guess what? You can have death threats on your life, but you will escape. You will be invincible until your hour has come. And then look what happens. We have reaction number two to his teaching. And that's found in verse 31. And many of the people, this is reaction number two, believed in him. Now these, notice it's many, right? So you had the locals who reject him, try to arrest him. Then you have the many, probably some pilgrims who came down, some people who are here teaching, they get convinced of his teaching, and they believe in him. And look what they said in verse 31. They said, when the Christ comes, when the Messiah comes, will he do more signs than these, which this man has done? And the answer is, no, this guy's healed people. He's done all kinds of things. This must be the Christ. So they believed on him based on what? In verse 31. On the signs. Now what do you know about that? When somebody believes on Jesus based on the signs, what do you know about that? It's not a good thing. It's a surface belief. And we know at the end of chapter 2, it says many people believed on him because of the signs, but Jesus wouldn't commit himself to them because he knew it was a surface belief. So here's our people who are giving him their lip service, but they're probably not real disciples. So that's the second reaction, the surface belief. Now the third reaction in verse 32. The Pharisees. Oh, now there's the bad guys. That's the Jewish leaders representing the Sanhedrin. The Jewish council. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him. Some trying to grab him and arrest him. Some saying we believe on him. And notice it's a, they heard the crowd murmuring. What's going on over there? Is there something going over on that porch in that part of the temple? They probably send somebody over and say, they hear what all those are going on. So look what they did. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Uh, this all grabs the attention of the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees, and they decide, well, we might let's, let's send some professional cops in there to arrest him. 
He's obviously, the crowd can't get a hold of him, the locals can't get a hold of him. Let's send some temple police to arrest this imposter. And these would be the police that are brought out, especially during times of feast and festivals, to control the crowd. And so they call for the police to arrest Jesus okay, and bring him in. So it shows you they're not up, they're not having given up any idea about arresting him or killing him. They haven't become his disciples. They're still against it. So the gospel writer John tells us about them. So now what we have is Jesus' response, which is interesting. Look at verse 33. Then Jesus said to them, I will be with you a little while longer, and then I will go to him who sent me, which would be back to the Father. And you will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Now, when he says that, we know what he means. He means that one day he's going to die and be resurrected and go back to the Father, and then it's going to be too late for them to seek him and find salvation, find eternal life. That's what he's talking about. But when they hear this, I'm going to go somewhere where you can't come, and you, you'll seek me and you won't be able to find me. They're thinking about what? Arresting him. He's, they're thinking that he's going to escape. Where is he going to go where we can't find him? Hey, remember what happened when... When Jews were converting to Christianity and the Sanhedrin sent out a guy named Saul of Tarsus, remember what he did? He went wherever he had to go to arrest those people. There's no place that they couldn't. It's like the mafia, you know? If you get into the mafia, I don't care what island you go to, guess what? They'll find you. So, Jesus, I want to go somewhere where you can't seek me, can't find me. And uh, he means when I go to heaven, it'll be too late for you to have eternal life. But that's not what they're getting. Okay? Of course, they misinterpret everything. <clears throat> and so uh, look what the confusion that they experience in verse 35. Then the Jews said among themselves, well, where do they intend to go? I don't you think that's how they said it? I think that's how they said it. Where does he intend to go? That we shall not find man. Hey, we'll hunt him down. Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? Uh, what's he planning on doing? Getting out of the city once the feast is over and go to the dispersion? What in the world is the dispersion? Who are the Greeks? Well, the dispersion took place during the Babylonian captivity. Remember Babylon came down into Jerusalem and captured the city? and took their people captive. That was called the Babylonian captivity. Happened way back in 586 BC. <coughs> and then the Persian Empire came and defeated Babylon, and then the Roman Empire, at this time, defeats the Persian Empire, and Rome controls the world. But guess what? Many of those Jews who were dispersed during the Babylonian captivity uh, just stayed dispersed. And remember when Nehemiah came back to Jerusalem? They were going to fix the temple up. And remember all that? And Ezra was going to come in and he's going to read the law and all that kind of stuff that happened. And some Jews came back with Nehemiah to Jerusalem. Most of the Jews didn't come back. Most of the Jews remained dispersed. And they intermarried with pagans. And they assimilated into 
Gentile culture. And they lost their Jewishness. And so the Pharisees said, where in the world is he planning on going that we won't be able to? I bet you he's going to go way out there in pagan territory somewhere and try to teach those Greeks when he's teaching us. And he thinks that he can get away with it and we won't be able to find him. So that's what he's talking about here. It's crazy. That's what they thought Jesus meant. See how they misinterpreted what he meant? What Jesus meant is one day I'm going to go to heaven and then it'll be too late for you. You will have reached the point of no return. The door of salvation will be closed for you. And you know the door of salvation, every one of us has a window of opportunity to come to Christ and see Christ. But there's a point that you can cross and then it'll be too late. That's why you need to come to Christ now. And that's what the writer wants us to realize. And I imagine his audience that he's writing to, maybe in 95 AD, there are a lot of people who are just on the border, maybe relatives, maybe friends, and they're considering Christ. And he wants to drive home the message, you need to come to Christ now before it's too late and you won't be able to see. It's a good message. Now look at verse 36. Verse 36. What is this thing he said? See, they're still talking about that. You shall seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. So, you know, what's this prattle all about? What in the world is he talking about? What's this? It makes sense what he's saying. It's incoherent. It's nonsense. So they're just sort of rattling on about what Jesus just said, and they're misinterpreting the entire thing. Okay, so that covers the first part of that section, which are, are the reactions to Jesus' teaching in midweek during the Feast of Tabernacles. Now we come to the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the eighth day. Okay. Look at verse 37. On the last day, now notice how it's described, that great day of the Feast. Now, the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles was called a great day because it involved a great ceremony. It was a ceremony that involved a procession of thousands of people walking through the main streets of Jerusalem toward the temple, waving palm branches, sort of like Palm Sunday, you know, waving palm branches. And then behind the pilgrims, seven priests followed, holding golden bowls of water that had been drawn from the pool of Shalom. And they would carry this, and this was a sacred moment, and they would carry this water, and they would pour it around the altar in the temple. And the pouring of this water and the carrying of this water represented cleansing and refreshing. Cleansing of sin and refreshing. And it harkened back to the time that God provided water for Israel in the wilderness when they had to live in booths. Remember when Moses struck the rock when they needed water and the water came forth? And the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians says, and that rock was Christ. And it followed them throughout the wilderness. So it spoke of God's provision of water back in the wilderness after the Exodus. And so the priest would pour it out around the altar signifying that and then the priest would offer prayers and blessings and thanksgivings and hope because the ceremony also pointed to the kingdom, the future kingdom, when God's blessings 
would be poured out upon the nation of Israel once again and they wouldn't be under slavery. And the water would flow and the desert would bloom like a rose. It pointed to the future kingdom. So this is a great ceremony and right in the middle of the ceremony there was a solemn moment when the priests take their bowl and start pouring the water out around the altar. Suddenly Jesus shouts out and gets their attention. He interrupts the sacred event and he just screams out. And look what he says in verse 37. It says, Jesus stood. <laughs> he said, wait, I want to get your attention. It goes like this. You don't think of Jesus doing things like this. Well, that's how, he, that's how I interpret it. He stood and he cried and look what he said. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He puts himself in the center of everything. And this is called the great invitation. If you're thirsty, you need refreshing, come to me and drink. And then he says this in verse 38. This is called the great promise. The verse, is that where we are? Verse 38. He who believes in me as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this is uh, very similar to what he said to the woman at the well, remember? You go back to chapter 4 and you look at the woman at the well, it's almost uh, identical. He said, you know, if you knew who was speaking to you, you could ask him for water. Remember that? And she's thinking that he's talking about drawing water out of the well. And he says, no, I'm talking about receiving water from me. And uh, when you look at verse 38, I want you to notice a few words. Notice the word rivers. Do you see that? Rivers of water. Plural. Speaks of an unending supply of this water. If you're thirsty, come to me. I'll give you an unending supply of water. Remember what he said to the woman at the well? If you come to me, you'll never have to thirst again. Remember that? She said, boy, give me that water. And then notice also it's called living water, rivers of living water, which was water that flowed constantly, like in a river. It just doesn't stop flowing. It's a constant flow. So he's talking about a constant flow. And then notice the phrase, as the scripture has said. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, can receive these rivers of living water. Well, if you go to, I, we won't turn there, but you go to Isaiah uh, 12, Isaiah 42, Isaiah... 55, oh, he that thirsts, let him come and drink. Uh, and Ezekiel 47 uh, talks about a future time when God will provide water or the Holy Spirit, which is what the water signifies. And in Ezekiel 47, where symbolic language is used and metaphorical language is used, it says during the kingdom age, the the water will flow from the temple. And anybody who wants a drink will be able to just dip down and get a drink of this living water that comes from the temple. Where does Jesus say the water flows from? From him. Anybody who wants a drink has to do what? Come to me. Guess what Jesus is doing? Jesus is replacing the temple. The old system, which centered on the temple, is going out. The sacrifices and everything that took place in the, under the old covenant going out. Guess what? Jesus is the temple. 
right? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and templed or tabernacled among us. The Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus, in Jesus, He's the temple, and it's from Him that the water flows out. And when you drink, it becomes a permanent fixture in you, and like an artesian well, eternal life just continues to flow from you. So, uh, boy, that Jesus is giving the Feast of Tabernacles a whole different meaning. He's replacing the old meaning with the new meaning. You still with me? So now, the Gospel writer John has to explain to his audience in 95 AD what all this is about. And look what he says in verse 39. But he said this concerning the Spirit. He wasn't talking about just water. He's talking about his spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. Comes from the outside. He was spoke concerning the spirit, whom those believing in him, those in him would receive. Now look at this. For the spirit was not yet given. Because Jesus was not yet what? <clears throat> Glorified. So Jesus is saying this is an event that's going to happen in the future. He who thirsts, come to me, I'll give you the water. And John the writer says, now wait a second, he was talking about a future event. He was talking about the Holy Spirit who had not yet been given. Because Jesus had not yet been what? Glorified. But when Jesus dies on the cross, and he's raised, and he goes into heaven, on the day of Pentecost, what does he do? He pours out the Spirit. Pours out the Spirit upon the people who repent and who believe. <clears throat> okay, so John, later on in chapters 14, 15, and 16, will deal with this Holy Spirit issue. Once again, he'll devote three entire chapters to it. So now, let's get the response to this statement when Jesus interrupts the sacred event. Let's get the response to that. And look at verse 40, response number one. Therefore, many of the crowd, when they heard this, said, number one, truly, this is the prophet. I mean, the prophet like unto Moses, which is based on what, Deuteronomy chapter 18, 16 and 18. So, this is the prophet. Uh, they don't think he's the Messiah, but they think he's the prophet who's going to come before the Messiah. That's one reaction. Okay. That was a popular belief. Okay, number two, verse 41. Reaction two. Others said, wait a second, no, he's not just the prophet, he's the Christ, he's the Messiah. So that's the second reaction. Now look at the third reaction. But some said, wait a second. Will the Messiah come out of Galilee? Messiah doesn't come out of Galilee. Now Galilee was up north, and it was like, like I say, the armpit of Israel. You know, it's where the mountain folks lived. They weren't the uh, cosmopolitan people. Uh, it was a very Gentile area where Jews, some Jews lived. But when you rub shoulders with Gentiles, that makes you unclean. How, the Messiah is not going to come out of. Galilee, is he? That's the third reaction. They're saying, wait a second, he's not the prophet, he's not the, he's not the Messiah. Yeah, this is, there's something wrong here. He keeps coming out of Galilee. 
And then what it says in verse 42. Has, doesn't the scripture say that the Messiah comes from the seed of David? And the answer to that is what? Yeah, that's right. And from the town of what? Bethlehem, where David was. So Bethlehem's down here, Galilee's up there, and uh, there was a belief that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Remember when uh, Jesus is born in the Gospel of Luke and Matthew, it talks about the birth of Jesus, and the wise men come, and they ask Herod, where is he who's, who's the king of the Jews? And Herod under his breath says, I'm the king of the Jews. What are you talking about? And they say, well, not you. We're talking about the Messiah. And Herod goes to his advisors and says, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? Because remember, the wise men said, we saw his star. We know he's just been born. And so his advisors went and looked. They said, oh, Micah 5.2 says Bethlehem. So they thought the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, and one day it just sort of stepped onto the scene out of nowhere. And so they said, wait a second, he, he, this, this guy's from Nazareth, he's not from Bethlehem, which shows us that they don't know where he was born, but they know where the Messiah was supposed to be born, but they don't know Jesus' history, all they know is his history uh, up in Nazareth. <clears throat> so, uh, look at verse 43. So there was a division among the people. Three different opinions because of him. So they finally draw a conclusion. And uh, look at this. So some of them wanted to take it. Okay, this is nonsense. Let's just, let's just grab a hold of it. But no one laid hands on him. They returned empty-handed. Again, he just slipped out of their midst. And you know why? Because this time wasn't yet come. So then look at verse 45. This is great. Then the officers of the chief priest of the Pharisees came. Now, those are the guys back in verse 32. If you look there, the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring and concerning him, and they, they sent officers to take him. Remember that? To arrest him. Well, now it's three days later, and they finally show back up with the Pharisees. And so look at verse 45. Then the officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, Where is he? Why are you under arrest? Why don't you have a man in the handcuffs? See? Isn't that what 45 is? Why have you not brought him? And the officers answered, Why haven't you brought him? No man ever spoke like this. If you'd been there, Seen him with your own eyes. And the way he spoke with authority. And how we were convicted when we heard what he said. We just couldn't arrest him. Uh, maybe one of us even went up to him and suddenly he wasn't there anymore. It was, just, it was too much. And so the Pharisees, of course, when they hear this, they think this is just an excuse. That uh, he, he was a powerful speaker. And that's why they abandoned their mission. And they're not going to have any of that. So look at verse 47. And the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Well, that's sort of an interesting statement. Because that's the same thing that the locals accused of the Pharisees. Why are they allowing him to continue up here? Weren't they trying to kill him? <laughs> that's the irony of the thing. They've been accused of the same thing themselves. So in verse 47 they said, uh, are you deceived also? You know. And 
verse 48 to that. Have any of the rulers or, or the Pharisees believed on him? And the answer is what? No. Don't talk about this man speaking with great authority and power. Do you see any of the Pharisees believing on him? The only people that believe on him are dupes. You represented the Sanhedrin. You were supposed to arrest him. You don't see any of us being led astray, do you? Only you. Verse 49. But the crowd, this crowd, look at that, this crowd, does not know the law. That does not know the law is accursed. The only people that, that have followed him is this Dumbo crowd over here. The ones that don't know the law. The ones that are accursed. You know, the Pharisees had a whole category of people who were that they marginalized. And these were people who just didn't keep the law the way they wanted them to keep the law. And if you didn't keep the law, you were cursed. And these are people on the margins. And uh, the elites, like the Pharisees, were blessed, and the people on the margins are cursed. What are you, one of his followers now? You like these crowd out here that's been duped? You don't see any of the Pharisees believing on him, do you? And so they're very angry at this, that they didn't arrest Jesus. Now, the crazy thing is, we're introduced in verse 50 to a guy that we met back in chapter 3. He just sort of shows up. <clears throat> Look what it says. Nicodemus. The one who came to Jesus by night, secretly. Being one of them, a member of the Sanhedrin himself, an elitist said to them, one of their own said to them, verse 50, 1, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? Now this is Nicodemus, he's the great teacher of Israel, he's a master of the law. These people just mentioned the law, didn't they? The dupes, they, they don't keep the law, they, they're cursed, they're lawbreakers. Nicodemus says, wait a second, we're also on the verge right now of breaking the law of Moses because the law of Moses in Leviticus 15 says that a man has a right to defend himself. And the law says that a man is innocent until proven guilty. See, the American Constitution didn't come up with that idea. The law of Moses had that idea. So Nicodemus says, don't don't move too fast. You know, when you arrest somebody, you have to charge them. You know, they're innocent. You just can't treat them like they're guilty. You know, they have a right to defend themselves. So he brings up this legal point. And his comrades, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, and the chief priests, are so angry that he hasn't been arrested that they lash out at Nicodemus himself. Which is an amazing thing when you think of who Nicodemus is. And look what they said to him in verse 51, 52. They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? <laughs> what are you? Are you his neighbor or something? Are you, you related to this guy? <laughs> now they knew who Nicodemus was. He was from Jerusalem. He was one of their own. But guess what? They're so angry that they just come up with some stupid statement. What are you, are you a northerner too? Are you one of those Galileans? You see, it shows you how angry they are. 
Now, notice they're angry at one of their own, and uh, Nicodemus is 100% right. He is a master teacher of the law, and they should have been listening to him, but they're so angry they just lash out and come up with that stupid statement. What are you, one of his relatives? <laughs> Nicodemus doesn't even bother answering that. That's not worth an answer. And look what else they say in verse 52, showing their real ignorance of the law. They say to the master teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, search and look, meaning the scriptures, for no prophet has arisen from Galilee. Oh no, Jonah was from Galilee. He was a prophet to the north. Nahum was from Galilee. He was from Capernaum. They're talking to the master teacher of the law, quoting the scripture, and they're doing it out of pure ignorance. Now, I think that if you would have given them time, they would have recognized that there were prophets from the north, and that Jesus indeed may have been a prophet from the north, but they're so angry that they can't even think clearly. They come up with these, these comments. They lash out. And so at the end, nothing is resolved. The feast is over. Nothing is resolved. Jesus had the last word. He's disrupted the entire feast. The verse 53 says, so everyone just went to his own house. <laughs> the place dispersed. And uh, then in chapter 8, verse 1, it says, and Jesus, he went up to the Mount of Olives. <laughs> so that's where we're going to pick up next week with Jesus at the Mount of Olives, and he comes down from the Mount of Olives in verse 2. And... Uh, it says he came down there and he began to teach them again. He didn't run. He didn't go to the dispersion like they thought he was. He stayed right there in Jerusalem. He will stay in this region uh, for the next six months until, they, until it's finally God's time. And they grab him and crucify him. And then he's raised. And for them, it'll be too late. Even if they seek him, they will not find him. Lord, we thank you for your word. When we think of this chapter 7, we see, we get a sense of how Jesus taught. We get a sense of, of how he stirred the hearts of people positively, negatively. How people were confused and, and in awe and amazed at how he spoke and misinterpreted. And we could, we could just get a sense of that dynamic in this chapter. And the whole time we have a sense that Jesus is in control everything that's going on. He's in control of the argument. He's in control of whether they can take him or not. Jesus sets the agenda. Oh Lord, help us to realize that. Help us to realize that if we are with Jesus and we are in Christ through faith, 